Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Writing an introduction for Dr. Joanna Fernandez is no easy feat. Associate Professor of History at New York City's Baruch College, she is the author of The Young Lords, A Radical History, History of the Puerto Rican Counterpart of the Black Panther Party. Then there's the Freedom of Information lawsuit she filed against the New York Police Department, which led to the recovery of the largest repository of police surveillance records in the country, including those of Malcolm X. Dr. Fernandez is also an editor of Writing on the Wall, Selected Prison Writings of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She wrote and produced the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Joanna directed and co-curated Presente, The Young Lords of New York, an exhibition shown at three New York City museums and which the New York Times cited as one of 2015's top 10 best in art. Then there's her radio gig as host of A New Day, which airs Monday to Thursday mornings on WBAI. Joanna's honors include a Fulbright Scholars Grant, which took her to the Middle East and North Africa, a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, of the Scholars in Resident program at the Schomburg Center in Black Culture of the New York Public Library. She received a Bachelor of Arts in Literature and American Civilization from Brown University and a doctorate in U.S. History from Columbia. So it's time to meet and get to know Dr. Joanna Fernandez. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Well, when you were listing off all of those accomplishments, I said, yowza. You know, I get that sometimes from the women that I interview, that when you say it like that, it's almost overwhelming. It really does give you pause, doesn't it? It does. I don't know when it all happened. Um, And yes, we tend to make ourselves small, we, the women of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree. So talk to me about how this all began for you. Where'd you grow up? And What did you aspire to when you were growing up? What did you want to be? Whoa, those are are big questions. I grew up in the BX, so the boogie down is in the house. I'm from the Bronx. (laughs) So watch out. Yeah, okay, okay. My parents are immigrants from the Dominican Republic, and I grew up in the Bronx, uh, at the height of deindustrialization, when jobs were fleeing the city to the suburbs and to the south in stages. This was at the height of the crack epidemic. And I went to the worst public schools in New York, and I landed in the most elite institutions in the country. And I really can't tell you how that happened. I did not dream of being a professor or a doctor or a lawyer uh, when I was in school. I'm one of four children, but the only girl. So I grew up with three boys. And some folks think that I'm a wolf. And I think that I'm a wolf just in my daily interactions with folks, because I grew up with, with boys. I so you're up tenacious, boys. you mean? Is that yeah. another word or way of saying tenacious? Yeah, or maybe I was just raised by wolves. I'm just not, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I'm, I'm um, honest to a fault. 
and I don't know how to dress things up and I'm just going to tell you what I think. And I do not mean to, to hurt you or to offend you. I just want to get with the conversation. Let's get it going. Where do we want to go from here? So we don't do things alone. I, I had some pretty uh, incisive and perceptive teachers, I think, at different moments in my early schooling in junior high school. I re- remember there was this one teacher, Miss Hornstein, who uh, had us do these reading exercises every day. I had, I had problems with tests and reading because English is my second language. Mm, even, mm-hmm. even though I was born here, my parents still to this day don't speak English fluently. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only girl, so I didn't really have access to the streets like my brothers did. And so I grew up speaking Spanish. So when I got to school, I didn't speak English and I was placed in bilingual classes in the Bronx, which were uh, the place where you were stigmatized, not necessarily where you went to learn uh, both languages. I knew that there was something off. Mm. It was clear that I was different alongside of other students. But in any case, Ms. Hornstein, my seventh grade teacher, just gave us these reading assignments every every day uh, for a year. And by the end of my seventh grade, I tested at the top of my class. Mm-hmm. And that I think that changed things in terms of my confidence, I imagine. But then I got into this class, 8GWC1, students are tracked, unfortunately, uh, in New York City uh, public schools. And my English teacher, Miss Mott, had us memorize poems like If by Rudyard Kipling and, and others. And, and that gave me a sense that there was something larger than myself. It gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. It it put me in touch with literature and and drama and theater and broader issues connected to to humanity mm-hmm. and 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 finally i'll say finally my junior or senior year my chemistry teacher mr album suggested that i study in england after high school, that I postpone college. And do a year abroad? And do a year abroad. And I studied in the elite schools of England. I studied at Charterhouse, which is comparable to Eton. Not sure huh. if you know though that system, but I did A-levels. Uh-huh. And, and Mr. Alba must have known, yowza, this, this young woman is off to college, but she's been trained in the worst school. So maybe she needs a little reinforcement before she gets to college. And really, that was the best thing that happened to me, not because of the training I got in England at Charter House, but because I traveled. And I was about to enter an atmosphere at Brown where, where young people had traveled the world. Sure. Uh-huh. And, and so when I got to Brown, I was like, yeah, I've been there too. All of these things that you've mentioned, forgive the kind of gushing, are all very seismic. People saw something in you 
they sponsored you, they encouraged you, and you went along with it. What a strong sense of self, Joanna. I don't even know what to say. Uh, It was all, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. All of it was difficult. I I was studying with literally the ruling class in England. Mm. And it was a foreign world. Uh, I was an outsider. I was also a woman of color, black and, uh, and Latinx. Mm. And yeah, it was lonely. It was challenging, but I, you know, I barreled through and, uh, and, and here I am telling the tale. I, I should say that, that my father had a pr- profound influence on me and I think on all of my siblings. My father grew up in poverty in the Dominican Republic. His parents both died when he was six. Aye. And he literally raised himself. <laughs> and uh, there's a story that I should probably tell. But um, one day when I get back from college, uh, I'm home and my father calls me into his office, which is essentially our living room in the Bronx. And he asks me, uh, what, are, what, what's your philosophy on love? And I, and I what yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> right. Father, you who made it illegal to fall in love when I was growing up, <laughs> I do not want to talk about love with you. I didn't tell him that, but uh-huh. I essentially, uh, changed the subject. And And I remember that he started then telling me a story of growing up in the Dominican Republic after his parents died and he was nine years old and he had to work. So he worked the land and he was able to save a little money and he got a farm animal. He got a pig because he said, uh, if you're a farmer, a peasant, and you got no animals, you're, you know, you're not in business. Right. So, so he, he got this pig and the pig became his best friend. And he said, you know, folks um, say terrible things about pigs, but pigs are very smart. Uh, They're also very loving. And so after work, I would, I would go find the pig and the pig was roaming the woods, but the pig knew when I was coming and I take a nap on the, the pig's belly. Oh my God. Uh-huh. This this was essentially my father's mother. Uh, and this course, is the first time you've heard anything like this before. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so my I'm like crying. Yeah, duh. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm crying listening to this story. And and the lights were off because it was nighttime. And my of course I, I didn't want my father to see me cry. And and so he says to me. And then this was in the era of the Trujillo regime, the Leonidas Trujillo regime, the, the, the dictator supported by the United States who ruled over the country for over 30 years. And the dictator was handing out fines to families who didn't send their children to school. And when my parents died, I was uh, in the charge or under the charge of my uncles and aunts. Mm. 
And so my uncles and aunts were fined. Wow. And you know where the story is going. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they went, found the pig, and sold it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I then asked my dad, well, why didn't you go find the pig? Like, who did they sell it to? And he says, the butcher. Mm-hmm. So my father, my father, uh, you know, didn't go to school. Uh, I, I don't think he, he finished the third grade, but he taught himself how to read. And um, he eventually left the country. He, he joined the Navy. Uh, and he saw that as as a route out of uh, the condition of poverty under poverty, which he lived. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he ended up, in fact, as a cook in the dictatorship. So he t- told so many stories, um, but but he had a profound sense of ethics, and. Um, and he had a profound sense of justice. Mm-hmm. And so he would say, there are so few with so much um, and so many with so little. How could that be? Mm. Um, so my father was a, an organic philosopher. And, right. and I, was, I was profoundly influenced by his, his deep sense um, that that we could do better mm-hmm. as as individuals, as people, as humanity, and and you know he I grew up with him saying what you have to be of use to society, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what it is, but make sure you are of use to society. What you're talking about is very profound, and also for me, very emotional as I'm listening to this. I mean, you can't put a price tag on how you're sharing who you are. Yeah. My father died almost two years ago. And uh, by the way, he was, he was a janitor. He was a janitor in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, he was the superintendent of the building uh, where I grew up. But yeah, he was, he was, he was a large, a large, human being his he had a large heart and um he was a very loving uh loving force in my life and and you know he he died prematurely because of the horrific condition of hospitals in New York City in the Bronx in poor mm-hmm. neighborhoods mm-hmm. and that's a long story that I'll write a book about one day but he saw who you were. Oh, I was the only girl. Are you kidding me? I was the preferred child. Yes, my father loved me. And of course he was proud. Um, but yes, I'm I <laughs> I'm very happy to to have been my father's favorite child. I mean, not for nothing. What a foundation. Oh my god, what a foundation. Don't tell my brothers, I'm telling you this. <laughs> Your secret's safe with me. Yeah. So you went to England and then you went to Brown. This is really big stuff. I mean, this is huge. It took a lot of uh, just sticking with it to 
to make it through Brown. But Brown is a different Ivy League. And you're indoctrinated as soon as you enter the college campus. And, you know, you're taught things like most of what you're going to learn, you're going to learn outside of the classroom. Grades are important, but are they really? Isn't uh, what matters that you learn how to think Mm. and that you master something? And we all learn uh, at a different pace and we all learn differently. So the philosophy of education at Brown at, at Brown was was conducive to uh, to encouraging someone like myself who was already on the way to to not wanting to learn because I wanted to you know get to some profession, but I, I wanted to learn because there's something profoundly enriching about learning and because ultimately learning is about asking the larger questions who am i and what is my relationship to my family what's my relationship to my community mm-hmm. to the country and the world mm-hmm. and why am i why am i here i'm i'm here for for a limited period of time and what do I want to do with that time? And I, I wanted to understand social problems. And so, and so I was at the perfect, in the perfect environment to, to understand how society works, where inequality comes from. Why was there a dictator in the Dominican Republic? Why did my father grow up in poverty? I feel fortunate to have, uh, to have, had access to a to a place like Brown mm-hmm. because it really nourished my uh, my intellect uh, and it fed my interest in mm-hmm. in knowing mm-hmm. as well as your soul, I would imagine. Yes, and I was embattled with the with the uh, college as well. I was one of the members of the student body or a class, I would say. I was. Uh, a member of a class, the first in the history of Brown to be accepted need blind. That's without the admissions office looking at the student's ability to pay. Mm-hmm. So so Brown was the last Ivy League that was need aware, m- meaning that its admissions policy looked at the student's ability to pay. And so... We got into uh, to Brown, and then that policy was overturned because it was going to cost the the college too much. I was, I had a big financial aid package, and so did others in, in my class. And so I was part of a movement called Students for Aid and Minority Admission to change that need aware policy, and I was part of a student occupation of. Uh, University Hall, the largest student occupation of the 1990s. Over a thousand students occupied University Hall and um, and approximately 260 of us were arrested. I was 
one of the leading members of that movement. So I, it was an incredible moment in my development for sure. And I was coming of age politically, but I was also embattled with the policies uh, of the university. So who you are and what you chose to do with your life and your career, I'm not being dismissive of it, but it just, it's a no brainer almost. I, I'd say that folks probably who knew me at Brown would say that. But is that how you felt? No, I, I think that, I think I was just driven by, by this North Star. I was driven by this profound sense of justice uh, that my father instilled in me, but also, to tell you the truth, by the folks I felt like I had left behind, who who I knew was were who I knew were equally capable of being at Brown, but but weren't because this country doesn't afford all of its citizens a decent um, education, and so so I was lucky. I was lucky that I was plucked, that someone uh, paid attention to me and that noticed me. But, but my peers in the Bronx were, I don't think that I'm necessarily any smarter than my peers in my cohort. I didn't think that I was going to become politically involved. Uh, I, I, I was just acting in the world as I thought I needed to in order to expand the experience of freedom Mm -hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. Well, that's clearly what your focus has been on a professional level. I mean, as I said in the introduction, that getting involved in all those politics, I don't mean to jump ahead, but was this all a natural progression for you when, when you got out of school? I didn't know where I was going. I was torn between going to law school and becoming a professor. I didn't know, or going to graduate school, that's what that meant. And I didn't know what that, no one knows what it takes to become a professor, right? Mm -hmm. It's this thing that happens that if you go to college, you're exposed to professors, but how does one become a professor? What's a (laughs) dissertation? (laughs) Right, exactly. And what do professors do? outside of the classroom. Like all of that was, you know, Japanese to me, mm-hmm. but I decided that I wanted to continue to do whatever it, it was that I was doing at Brown. And so I thought maybe law school won't take me in that direction. Maybe I just need to go to graduate school, not realizing that the broad kind of learning that I was exposed to at Brown is not what graduate school is about. Graduate school is about deepening your knowledge in one specific area. Right. With a real study, focus. Yeah. With a real mm-hmm. focus, which was not easy, mm-hmm. which was not mm-hmm. easy um, for me uh, in graduate school. But I became involved in all kinds of different um, campaigns and politics with a small p, grassroots uh politics in New York City in the 1990s as a graduate student at Columbia um, around the issue of the death penalty, for example. I'm not sure if you remember, but the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, the Mm -hmm. imprisoned radio journalist, Mm -hmm. um, veteran Black Panther, was a big thing. He was like the Che Guevara of our time. He was facing execution. He had just written a book uh, called Live from Death Row. 
and uh, he became the face of this movement against the death penalty. And uh, he his book humanized death row from the inside, but this was also a moment uh, when there was an international movement against third world debt. The Mexicans in Chiapas had launched their revolution and um, and there was an international movement blossoming to save the environment. I'm not sure if you remember in the 1990s. So this is the context in which I I was coming of age, and and yeah, I thrust myself uh, in those in those movements, and I identified a dissertation on the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican counterpart of the Black Panther Party, that I didn't know about when I was growing up. So the Young Lords occupied Lincoln Hospital mm-hmm. in the Bronx to dramatize the horrific conditions of health care. Um, for minority communities in minority for, communities for, for yeah for Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. and Black Americans mm-hmm. and and they were very young and I didn't know about this growing up and 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 my father almost died in Lincoln Hospital at around the time that that um, that they occupied mm-hmm. uh, in 1970. Mm-hmm. So so I write a I write a dissertation about the Young Lords their self proclaimed uh, socialist, revolutionary nationalists. They believe in the independence of Puerto Rico. And, and they have high aspirations for how we might reorganize society um, to meet human needs. So that, you know, that spoke to me. That, and they're communists and socialists. Of course, my father went screaming into the night because he grew up under dictatorship. And to him, People on the left uh, got a, got killed. Mm, yeah, he was worried for you. He was worried. He was worried for me. He was worried for me. I followed my passion. I followed uh, my my sense of uh, of of what was right, and it wasn't always easy. I didn't, you know, it wasn't popular uh, mm. to to uh, to identify with these ideas in the 90s because, as you might recall, it wasn't until the Occupy movement that it became acceptable to criticize capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, before that, you were on the outs in American society. From what I'm getting from you, you knew you, you did what you needed to do, that these things were all natural acts in a sense, you know, that one may have triggered another? Well, not really, um, Sandy, because as a graduate student at Columbia, I was expected to keep my head down. And I wasn't doing what other graduate students were doing. Other graduate students were not out in the streets leading protests, occupying buildings. Uh, graduate students were, uh, were, they had their nose in a book, but I, I was out in the streets. And that's my point. That's exactly my point that you, you know, you forged your own path. All of it just made sense to me because it made sense to you. Yes. I, I find it hard to live by by someone else's standards, 
Yeah, by someone else's vision. I, that's a, that's complicated psychology, but I get claustrophobic when I am not free to do what my heart and my and my gut tells yeah. me to do. Yeah, yeah. I guess I haven't really examined my life and the choices I made systematically, but I remember that one year during the summer break, I took a nine to five job somewhere and it was so slaying. I was depressed going to the office or whatever it was that I was doing every day. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I couldn't breathe. Mm. By the end of the summer, I was, I was seriously concerned because I didn't know what I would do with my life if I had to if if I had to work nine to five job. So clearly, unconsciously, I made decisions that would allow me the freedom to, you know, chart my own path. Was it an eventual natural act for you to become an educator, to become an academic? Yeah, probably. I'm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm an educator. I'm an educator at heart, for sure. But professors are not educators necessarily. You, you know, there are plenty of professors who, who can't teach. You mean who phone it in? <laughs> who phone it in, who, who just... You know, they they might be writers, they might be thinkers, mm-hmm. but, they, but they're not. But they're not educators, um, and 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 academics are not really taught how to teach. Our job is really to to produce knowledge, mm-hmm. to write. So i i had to I had to discipline myself to to write a dissertation. And to write a book because my heart is in the world. I want to be a butterfly. And so, and so I chose the profession that required sitting with yourself daily and your computer and cranking it out. And, and writing, writing is about making a mess and stepping back going back to the mess picking up you know your shame and uh from the floor and uh and and fixing it i'm a perfectionist what a surprise <laughs> so that process of sitting myself down and fighting with myself over what i over what I saw was an imperfect text was a very painful experience. But also, you know, I went to to Ivy League schools, but I also grew up in the Bronx. So, and I, and I was an outsider in mm-hmm. these schools. Mm-hmm. So that takes a toll on your confidence. So everything I've done has been a battle with myself. I, I think that regardless of where you come from, in terms of class or education. I happen to have come from the Bronx, Mm -hmm. the child of immigrants who didn't speak English. Uh, That made the process of writing difficult, but writing is difficult for everyone. But I lost my my, uh, 
train of thought. It, it took a lot of discipline and a lot of, it was painful. Every, every part of it was painful. The, the research was, was fascinating. It just discovering this history that was nowhere to be found. I remember no one had heard about the Young Lords. Uh, and when I said Young Lords, people said, what? Mm. Uh, and it was, it wasn't, it, it was almost uncouth. A gang? Who, who are they? Yeah, right. right. Um, and why are they important? Uh, so, so I was tasked to, to find them in the archive. They didn't exist in the archive. So I had to turn myself into Inspector Gadget uh, to find their imprint in New York's history, in the history of Chicago. And that, I loved that. Mm-hmm. I, loved, I loved finding them. So one of the things I did was I knew that they had done a lot of work around lead poisoning. So they are credited, their activism is credited with the passage of lead poisoning legislation in New York. The, the, the Journal of Public Health in 1974 said that all of the muckraking and the occupation of the Department of Health and um, the door-to-door testing and all the press conferences the Young Lords had around the issue of childhood lead poisoning led the city to, to finally act. So I knew that they had done work around lead poisoning. I go to um, the municipal archive of the city of New York, which looks like literally an insane asylum. <laughs> and there are vertical files uh, that are organized by subject. And I just go and I look for lead poisoning, 1969, 1970. And there they were. Mm. And then, and then I found them in the, in the papers of, uh, of the mayor, the mayor Lindsay's papers. There were the young Lords. Mm. Um, there was no archive, uh, no one archive where I could find them but I found them in many different places. And, um, and I wrote this history and ultimately what's incredible about this history. And I think what's beautiful about the young Lords that I identified with that called me is that the young Lords were the children of migration. Their parents migrated out of Puerto Rico and into cities like New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia after World War II. And they were uh, the interlocutors, the mediators between their parents and the new society. Mm -hmm. They translated for their parents at the schools, in the hospitals, at the bank, at the police precinct. And in that process, they gained a deeper instinctual understanding of what was wrong, of inequality. Uh, They understood that the system perceived Puerto Ricans and Black Americans in a way, in a particular way that was negative. And they saw themselves in their community differently. And part of what is important about the Young Lords is that they gave their generation the language to understand the migrants' crucible, which is a very American 
experience. Uh, of course, Puerto Ricans are a different kind of migrant because they are colonial subjects. And that migration was a product of uh, the displacement of peasants in Puerto Rico as a result of U.S. foreign policy of the industrialization project on the island of Puerto Rico. And Puerto Ricans, of course, are racialized. But but the, the hurricane of of um, migration that we saw in the late 19th century of Europeans produced children who were also the foot soldiers uh, in the settlement process of migration, mm-hmm. right? Who also helped help their parents um, figure out the system be- because they spoke, because they learned English. So that story, I tell that story. And I learned this by interviewing the young lords and they would tell me, oh yeah. And there were no translating services uh, in the 1960s. And so I, I was the translator and I was a kid. And if I got the translation wrong, forget about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was hell to pay. And so that, you know, that spoke to me. And that's, that's one of these themes that I think, um, uh, speaks to so many people, not just uh, domestically, but around the world, because because this system in which we live, I mean, humanity, it's migration is integral to the human experience. Um, and so I learned later that the young lords, alongside white doctors, nurses, but also workers in uh, Lincoln Hospital drafted the first known patient bill of rights. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, we can't not connect without referencing where we are today and looking for a better life. I was thinking about that when you were describing your dad. This is so personal for you. Yeah, it's a human rights catastrophe, right, of epic proportion and and so many of us feel powerless. Like well, you see this happening before you and you feel like you have no power to stop it. Children, the most vulnerable beings, people in our, in our society in cages. And we call ourselves the land of the free. The contradictions shock the conscience. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. Your father was six when his parents died. Your father could be the one who's crossing the border from Mexico all by himself. Himself. All alone. In my old age, don't know how to make sense of this. I mean, I was there for the Vietnam War and the protests and the Chicago Mm -hmm. 7. What's that standard line? Everything old is new again. Mm -hmm. You've taken the bull by the horns for you in addition to what you've done on a personal level and how what you must be doing in terms of exposing your students and educating your students on a different level. Fuck professorship. You know what I mean? In the right. Sense that, okay, whatever. This is who you are. Yes. Uh, there is such a thing as allowing students to come to an understanding of history and of the world without me filling their cups. So what I do is that I expose them to literature mm-hmm. and historical analyses that I think will help them 
better understand the world in which they live. So after 9-11, I taught a class. I taught a class on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and Latin America. I happened to be interviewing for my first academic job. Of course, I was insane because as you can imagine and you remember, to criticize U.S. society and U.S. foreign policy was to be with them. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. was, you're, you're either um, with us or against us. Or against us, us yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember sure. that slogan? You're either sure. with us or mm-hmm. against for us. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I was an idealistic, you know, young graduate student uh, teaching for the first time. And I told myself, well, if you can't really answer this question, why did 9-11 happen? Then you should just hang up. Mm-hmm. So I I immersed myself in the literature of U.S. foreign policy and taught a class titled America in the World, Historical Perspectives on 9-1-1. And it was a difficult class to teach. I was teaching at Trinity College at the time because of the level of, of suppression of speech. And also, this was at around the time that 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 you that you that the United States was deciding whether or not to invade Iraq, and the United States invaded Iraq. Right, and it took three years for most many Americans or some to see to see through the propaganda that we were hearing uh, from the government and the weapons of mass destruction that were not. And my students who challenged me in the classroom, just, and I was just presenting the literature mm-hmm. of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East post-1945, my students called me and emailed me years later to thank me. When Trump was, um, was elected, uh, my students thanked me for, for helping them to to understand what might have led to the Trump presidency. Right, right. how we got there. How we got there, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 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 yes, so I, um, I take the classroom seriously, as seriously as I take all the other work I'm involved in. And, um, and I, want, I want young people to, to ask questions about, about their society. And, and I want them to wonder about living in a world where, where children are not caged at the border. I just want to ask you as we kind of wind down, what's on the horizon for you? So this is the thing. I don't live my life with like five-year plan plans. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I, I, I really don't. Um, I just wrote this book. Uh, which was published at the height of the pandemic in in February of 2020, right as the pandemic was beginning. And I immersed myself in uh, the radio show, WBAI's morning show, A New Day, because I was asked and I said, no, they were in a pinch and they needed someone to anchor the show. The station had just been shut down illegally and they had been in court for a month, and now it was ready to reopen. They they won, and I 
was asked by Pam Africa, who is one of the leading members of the movement to free Mumia, to go to the WBAI press conference because she couldn't be there. So I showed up and I gave a talk about uh, a speech about the history of journalism, um, alternative ju- journalism and its place in American history uh, and this, the significance of WBAI to the anti-war movement in the 60s. And that's how they learned about me. They've heard me. Are you wanted in their Rolodex. <laughs> but yes, and I said, and I said, absolutely not. I cannot do this. I am not a radio person. I'm a professor. I could do an interview. I can comment on something. And they kept on coming back and coming back. And finally I said, okay, I'm going to do this for three months, but you need to find someone else. And then COVID hit and then Black Lives Matter hit. And and I understood the significance of amplifying a, a perspective on those um, developments. And here I am. I think that that the story of the young lords merits amplification um, in the mainstream and on the big screen. And so that, I imagine, is a, a challenge that is before me. I've written a book and and I've I've written this book for broad audiences, even though its scholarship um is impeccable. I give the title again. The the title of the book is The Young Lords A Radical History. History. Mm -hmm. So I will be doing that. But also I sued the NYPD for the surveillance records of the Young Lords and what emerged out of that struggle. Uh, was not only the surveillance records of the Young Lords, but over a million surveillance records of New Yorkers by the NYPD, including those of Malcolm X. Malcolm X, X yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. That is my new project, uh, to, to, to study those files and discover what those files tell us about American democracy, about life in New York between 1954 and 1972. Um, What I learned was that the NYPD was surveilling not radicals like the Young Lords, although they were, but they were surveilling, you know, the old lady down the block Mm -hmm. and the church. And uh, this was this was the culture of repression that emerged in the Cold War. And ironically, we were what we accused the USSR <laughs> of being. Right, 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 right. I mean, it's crazy. I know, I know. You will come back. I'll come back. Talk to me about that. That's my favorite story. I would love to. And you know what? When you reached out to me, I I looked you up <laughs> immediately. You saw I did not have a criminal record. You didn't have a criminal record. You weren't keeping surveillance records from me. <laughs> and. Uh, and I, I thought the concept of interviewing women and their lives just seemed so rich and beautiful uh, and inspiring, uh, but also women who are doing things in the world don't often take time to reflect on their lives. So this is a gift, really, 
to the women you interview. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And coming from you, it is, it just means the world to me, honestly. Um, Joanna, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I love what I do. And I meet the most amazing, wonderful women. Well, keep on doing it because we need more of it. And they say that that this is the epoch of the feminine that is emerging. So you're riding the wave of this new world that is before us, that is about to emerge. So thank you. No, well, thank you. It's been wonderful meeting and getting to know you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Mm-hmm.